we're talking about the church in the midst of a changing world. How do you minister the truth? And, and how do you faithful to the truth in a very winsome and loving and yet faithful way to the Lord? And over the last year, it feels like all of us, but I'm in the context of our church community, we've been plucked out of the old and put into something different. And again, we feel a little bit like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, where one minute she's in Kansas and kind of understands the roads and knows what's going on in the culture, and then, boom, she's snatched out of that and put in Oz. Has really no idea where she is. Uh, Her family has been scattered somewhere. There's this yellow brick road, but it ain't like the roads back in Kansas. And that doesn't mean it's worse, and it doesn't mean it's better. It just means it's different. And maybe a little bit like Nemo, where Nemo's plucked in the story out of his, you know, comfortable little space and put into something very different. Eventually makes it there into the, the fish tank. And it's just a different world for Nemo. The church very much feels like that. When I say church, I don't mean Ridgefield Baptist Church. I mean all churches. All churches that follow Christ and want to be faithful to the Lord. We all, in the Western world at least, feel like we're in a different context and things are not the way they were 12 or 18 months ago. So as we think about what does it mean to be faithful to God in a changing world, there are several principles that we can draw out of this passage where things are changing and Jesus here models for us what faithfulness looks like and describes for us what faithfulness looks like in a changing world. So I am by no means an expert on math, but I'll use a little math formula here as we work through the outline, the greater than symbol. So kids, I hope you paid attention. Big people, I hope you paid attention in math class. All right, let's look at a couple of thoughts here from the passage. The very first thing that God's people need to recognize, of course, principles are greater than personal applications. This might be the most obvious thing in the passage, if you understand the text here, but it's important to point this out. Principles are greater than personal applications. Christians should hold tightly to the timeless truths that are taught in God's word, but we need to give liberty on how those applications are carried out. So we have to make a differentiation here, and Jesus does in the passage, between what is the Sabbath and how people practice the Sabbath. The Sabbath for the Jewish people is the fourth commandment. I'm not yet getting into Christianity. For the Jewish people in Jesus' day is the fourth commandment. You shall do no work on the Sabbath. That's a timeless truth. The Sabbath is an important principle. Yet how people carry that out is going to look a little different house to house and person to person. What happened, of course, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, is a certain group of people came and put down all kinds of their rules and their ideas on the Sabbath, and what they did is they took their personal application and raised them to the level of timeless truth. So if you violate their ideas of what the Sabbath should look like, they say you're violating the Sabbath itself. Principles are always more important than our personal applications, And the Pharisees of the group in question here, they make the mistake of valuing their personal applications above the timeless truth. The word for that, of course, is legalism. Now, let's talk about what happened. We've got to put ourselves back into the first century. This can be tough to do, but it's really helpful if we do it. Let's go back to the first century. Of course, in the first century, picture yourself there in just the Jerusalem area, And everybody is observing the Sabbath. It's the fourth commandment. It's really important. They're observing the Sabbath. And what happens on this is the Pharisees come along and they put, and this is the technical term, they call it a fence around the Torah, or in this case, a fence around the Sabbath. 
So God gives the people the Sabbath for a reason. Two reasons, by the way. Exodus says it's because of the creation. Six days God worked, and then he rested on the seventh. In Deuteronomy, we have a slightly different reason, equally important. It's because of the deliverance of the people of God. Remember, they worked as slaves in Egypt. They had to work every day, all day. They were under somebody's thumb. When they come out of Egypt and now they go into the promised land, that is a huge gift from God. God gives them the Sabbath as a day of rest. You are no longer slaves. You no longer hurt them. You are now on my calendar, not theirs. And so it's a picture of God's salvation. So the Sabbath is a gift from God to the people. It reflects creation and it reflects salvation. It was not meant to be a burden. It was not meant to weigh people down and agitate and frustrate people. It wasn't given to guilt people that they weren't doing enough or were doing too much. It was given as a gift. And so what happened is, over time, different groups, and talk about this why in a minute, different groups came and they, they started to put what is called a fence around the Sabbath. And they did that because their thinking was, God told us to do this. Better to be safe than sorry. And so if we put all these man-made rules and regulations around the Sabbath, then people will never violate the Sabbath. And they started imposing those on, on the culture around them. Better safe than sorry. Let's not leave anything to chance. So let me just tell you what this looked like in the first century. And some of this today, depending on uh, what group, religious group we're talking about, might value some of these, but not all. So on the Sabbath, remember, it only says, you know, you shall not work and observe the day and it's a day of rest. You are not allowed to travel more than 3,000 feet from your house. But if you put a plate of food 3,000 feet away from your house, you could travel to the plate of food because that's part of your house and then take another 3,000 feet. Or if you wanted, you could tie a rope to yourself from your house. And if it was long enough, you could extend beyond because that was still considered part of your house. It can get a little silly, I know. Certain objects could be lifted, but only from certain places. You could not carry a load heavier than the dried fig. If it weighed more than that, you had to cut it in half. Eating regulations were tight. You couldn't eat anything better th- bigger than an olive, otherwise you'd be working. You couldn't throw an object in the air and catch it. That's too much work. Tailors were not allowed to carry needles just in case they felt the temptation to work on the Sabbath. A letter could not be sent. No fires could be extinguished, but if you already had a fire burning, you could keep that fire going depending on how big the wood was you're putting in the fire. You couldn't take a bath because you might spill some water on the floor and then you have to wipe it up and that would be considered working. Women were forbidden to look in the mirror lest they see a gray hair and they're tempted to pluck it out. That's not mine, that's from the first century. And, what, and the other thing is, in the, relevant to our stories here, you couldn't pluck grain on the Sabbath unless you were starving, unless you were starving. So in the ancient world, their system, their safety net for poor people was, of course, the people in their fields would leave certain parts un- unplucked and unpicked, and people could come and reap out of the corners of those fields. You could do that six days a week, but you weren't supposed to do that on the Sabbath. Again, this is all man-made rules. This is the fence around the Torah, unless you were starving, they said. When it comes to medical help, you could only help somebody if they were absolutely in danger. But if it could wait till the next day, you weren't supposed to heal. So Jesus in the stories here, he's pushing through the fence. You see what he's doing? He's breaking down the fence. He's putting gates in the fence, so to speak. Because in the story, 
Jesus and his disciples not only eat on the Sabbath, they, they pick, they're plucking, they're winnowing, uh, they're preparing their food. He's also healing on the Sabbath. The truth is, that withered hand could wait for the next day. And so the man-made rules would say, don't do that until the next day. What happened over time is the fence on the Sabbath marked you out as a righteous person. So you were not a faithful person if you honored the Sabbath. You became a faithful person if you honored the man-made rules that were placed on the Sabbath. And that created all kinds of chaos and burdens and legalism for the people. Now, where am I going with all this? Well, all this to say that applications of the Bible are important. We need to read the scriptures, see what it says, and say, how can I live this out in real life? There are timeless truths in the Word of God that every Christian, all times, all places, we adhere to as God's people. But how we carry those out is going to look different person to person. We have to realize that. And we can't mark people out as faithful or unfaithful according to our man-made rules. Faithfulness is adherence to the Scriptures and adherence to Christ. So it looks something like this. Let me just give you one example. Hebrews says... Not forsaking the assembling of the saints, as the man, that's the old, old English I'm quoting here. It's the only one. I remember it so much in old English that it comes out. Forgive me. Don't forget, forsake the assembling of the saints as the manner of some is, but encourage one another all the more as you see they approach. The simple timeless truth there is God's people have to continue to gather as God's people, right? Right up until the coming of Christ. That's how we encourage each other. That's how we build each other up. So every Christian needs to think about what does it mean to be faithful to the church? What does it mean to be faithful to the gathering of God's people? But we do realize that not every church does that the same way. And not every person does that the same way. We have some live here. We have some that are joining us online. And so it's important. The timeless principle, of course, is God's people must gather. But how we carry that out. We don't want to get legalistic. We don't want to say we're a better church than that one because we worship at 10 and they worship at 6, you know. We have pews, they have chairs. We have small groups, they have big groups. We have blended worship, they have traditional or some other kind of worship. It's really important that we honor that timeless truth of gathering, but we give liberty and we understand that it's okay to apply that different ways. You know, let me give you one more. Uh, Boy, if you have kids, you know how you raise your kids becomes, boy, we can get very energetic over that, right? What does the scripture say? The scripture, of course, says that every Christian parent should seek to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of Christ. We're always communicating the gospel to our kids. We want them to grow in Jesus, right? But that doesn't mean every parent's going to do everything the same way, helping their child come to Christ and understand his love. So we, we value the timeless truth, but we have to have a degree of liberty with how people carry it out. The problem becomes when we start to honor the fence instead of the principle, and we start to impose all of our ideas in a self-righteous way on somebody else, and that's what the Pharisees are doing here. So mark it out. As the world begins to change, and as the church, and we have, we've made changes in how we do ministry, We've made changes. I mean, we, we did not have people reading on screens a year ago, you know. As we make adjustments as a church, we're going to value those timeless truths. 
But make no mistake of it, the personal applications can change person to person and ministry to ministry. We don't want to take our applications and value them like a timeless truth. Okay, number two is this. Responding is greater than reacting. That's what we find in this passage. Christians should respond according to God's will rather than just react to the problems. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the Sabbath before we jump into the specifics here. And I know we're giving a lot of background today, and here's why. Why did they put a fence around the Torah? Why did they set all these rules and regulations up so that people wouldn't violate that commandment about the Sabbath? Well, here's the reason. Because this, what happened is, if you know your biblical history, the people of God were punished in the Old Testament. They were sent into Babylonian exile because they violated the Sabbath. In other words, they, they violated the, the principles that God put down, the law of God. The big one was the Sabbath. They started disregarding the Sabbath, and the country, the nation, paid a terrible price for what happened. They were plucked out. They were sent all over the world. And when they start regathering back, when God starts bringing them back, you know what people are saying? We're never going to let that one happen again. Never. And so what they start thinking is this. They start thinking, the reason we were sent out is because we violated the Sabbath. We're going to do everything we can to make sure we never violate the Sabbath again. See, they're right about the problem, but they're wrong about the response. This is a problem. You violated the commandment. It's clear in Scripture. But they reacted to the problem rather than thoughtfully responding to the Word of God and the will of God. And they were moved with a lot of misguided zeal. Sometimes what happens is we can be like the Pharisees in this regard. A problem comes into our lives, and we just immediately react to what that problem is. We don't step back. We don't think about what God's Word says. We don't think about what Christ would do in a situation like this. We just rush in and want to fix the problem. And that's what the Pharisees are guilty of here. They finally get to come back to Israel. We're never going to let this happen again. They are reacting to the problem, a very important problem, rather than responding according to the will of God. It's misguided zeal. It's doing things without really thinking about what the instructions say. You know what came to my mind when I was thinking about this is in South Carolina, uh, when I lived there, uh, my wife and I, we bought a treadmill. You know, it's like 15 years ago. Bought one of those treadmills from it was Costco, I think we bought it from. And brought it home. I was going to put it in a room. And so I'm in the living room there, and we, we put the treadmill together. This thing's heavy. I mean, really heavy. And uh, get all the nuts and the bolts. And I remember it, it. I got the thing perfectly put together. I even threw the instructions away. I don't need these anymore. Throw them in the garbage. And I'm like, Tina, help me push this in the other room. And lo and behold, one inch. That's right, one inch. The door jam was too short. <laughs> and I had to take the thing apart and put it back together in the bedroom. Sometimes we have that kind of misguided zeal like the Pharisees. We have a problem that comes into our life, and all we want to do is fix the problem any way we can fix the problem, but we're not thinking about what God's will is. We're not filtering through the Word of God, and that's what's happened with the Sabbath. The Sabbath, we are punished because, this is Israel, punished because and disciplined because of the Sabbath, and they're just saying we're never going to let this happen again. They are reacting to the problems rather than according to the will of God. I want you to picture for a minute a young man and a young woman 
and they're walking around a park. Beautiful park. It's got a pond. It's got little rivers that run through, little streams. And he's got a ring in his pocket. He's going to pop the big question somewhere along the way. It's a little awkward in the conversation because that's all he can think about. She's not sure what's going on. Something's up. His palms are starting to get sweaty, starting to stutter a little bit. And finally, they go right up to this little river, just a little stream that runs through. And they're sitting on a bench together. And he slips down on one knee and he pops the big question. And she is so excited, so excited. Yes, they stand up, they embrace. And as they embrace, the ring bumps out of her hand and goes right in the river. (laughs) And so what does the couple do? Same thing any of us would do. They immediately just, I mean, this is four months of pay for him, you know. They immediately get in that river, and they're walking around, and they're feeling the bottom to try to find this ring. And as they do, all the mud is kicking up and making it even worse. The question to consider is this. Do we have the patience to wait till the mud settles and the water is clean? Or do we just react to a problem? And I find in life, most of the time we just react. Your son says something and we react rather than think, what does God want me to do? Or something comes across the headline on the news and we don't wait for the mud to clear, right? We just react and we start thinking rather than what does God want us to do as his people? Or maybe you get caught doing something stupid. Everybody gets caught doing something stupid sometime. But the bigger problem is when we just try to fix it immediately rather than think about how God might want us to fix that problem. And so it's really important that we, that we think about what God's will instead of just respond to the problem. Responding to God is more important than reacting to problems. Jesus, by the way, is the archetype for this. Is he not? Remember that passage? It's all over the text. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. In other words, when Jesus is being persecuted, he doesn't just respond to the problem and lash out. But what is God's will for my life? He's responding to God, not to the people in the problem. Hey, I love this verse in Proverbs. This is a good one to live by, right? A soft answer turns away wrath. That's pretty good. Now, now, that's a proverb. Does a soft answer always turn away wrath? No. Jesus gave a soft answer and they put him on a cross. But the text says a soft answer turns away wrath. That's a general principle, right? What does that mean? That means when wrath comes your way, you're going to be tempted to respond with wrath. You're going to be tempted to respond with anger. React to the problem. Don't do it. Step back, think about God's will for your life, think about the scriptures as you understand them, respond to God, don't just react to the problems. All right, moving on. Number three, here's our third mathematical formula, Jesus is greater than David. Christianity 101 here, right? So they're plucking on the Sabbath here, and what's interesting is this, Jesus is not plucking, it's the disciples, But Jesus, of course, though he's the son of God, he's acting like a rabbi here to his disciples. And so the people do not come and confront the disciples about plucking on the Sabbath. They confront Jesus because he's their rabbi and he's allowing them to do this. So they're breaking this man-made rule, so to speak, on the Sabbath. And Jesus is confronted by this. 
And what Jesus talks about here is a story that happened in the Old Testament. It's in 1 Samuel 21, and it's a reference to David. Where David breaks a ritual because his men were hungry. And so what happened is there in the temple, they have something called the bread of presence. It's 12 loaves. It represented tribes there where they would do worship and sacrifice in the holy area. One lobe per tribe. They would bake this no less than 11 times. It was put on a three by one and a half foot golden table. It was located near the northern wall of the holy place in the temple. And the bread stood for the presence of God. Here's the key. Only the priests could eat the bread. David is not a priest. None of his mighty men, as they're called, are priests. But they got really hungry. And David authorized that they could eat the bread. And David's actually honored. It's upheld as a legitimate breaking of a tradition or a rule. And so Jesus points this out to the Pharisees. And what's his point? If David and his, and his warriors, his soldiers, could eat the forbidden bread, how much more the Lord of the Sabbath and his disciples? So Jesus here is, is not just defining work. He, I think he's doing more here than, than people know. He's not, just saying, he's not just saying there's a loophole in the law and you haven't considered it. He's actually arguing from the lesser to the greater. If David can violate a principle or, or a ritual so that his soldiers can eat, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He says it right here. My disciples can pluck grain on the Sabbath. If David is great, how much greater is the Lord of David? It's an argument from the lesser to greater. Jesus, by the way, argues from the lesser to the greater a lot. Remember this stuff about the sparrow? You know that old song, His Eyes on the Sparrow? What is that? That's an argument that Jesus uses from lesser to greater. If God cares about the sparrow, if he cares about the lilies of the field, of course he cares about you. You're created in his image. Same idea here. He argues from the lesser to the greater. David could do it because he was David. I can do this because I'm the son of man. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is superior to David. And by that we mean he's superior to all the kings in the Bible. Superior to all the priests. He is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. It's Christian Theology 101. What does it mean that David, uh, what does it mean that we as a church and as God's people, as Christians, lift up Christ? Well, let me just give you a couple principles. As the world changes, our ultimate hope is in Jesus, not the Davids of the world. This is really important when politics are spiraling all over the place, I think. I can only tell you that everybody has a David. And our Davids are not all the same. There are people that you think, if only that person was the president, most of the problems in the world would be fixed. That's not true, but we think that. And that person may be on the right. That person may be on the left. That person may be a very popular person. That person may be you. That may be your uncle. Everybody has people that they think if only they had control and authority. In other words, we tend to put our hope in people instead of Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is superior to all the kings? It doesn't mean that those kings of the world like David can't bring righteousness in this world. David certainly did. He caused a lot of problems too. But he also wrought righteousness, right? But what it means is our ultimate hope is in Christ. That's the story of Scripture. 
that Jesus someday comes for his people, makes all the wrongs of the world right, and our hope is ultimately in Christ. It also means this. If Jesus is superior, not just to David, but all the kings in Scripture, and frankly, all the kings of the world, Christians will remove Christ from Christianity at their own peril. When I hear people say things, and I, I get it, I get it, but they're like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, but I'm not, you know, I'm not in a Jesus. If you're a Christian and you do that, if you're removing Christ from Christianity, you are removing the uniqueness of Christianity. Jesus here says, David's important. We all honor David. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm superior to all. All right, number four is this. Love is greater than rituals. Rituals can be helpful, but love is more important than merely honoring our traditions. So again, there's this fence around the Sabbath, the fence around the Torah. In fact, the mission of the ancient document on the Sabbath, 39 primary categories, they divided it even further, All of those man-made rules they put around the Sabbath. Jesus here allows his disciples to do a quadruple violation. They pick, they thresh, they winnow, they prepare the food, and if you want to add the next one, they eat it. So Jesus here is not afraid to push through the tradition because he loves his disciples and he loves his people. And frankly, they're really hungry. Jesus will not let this ritual stand in the way of taking care of people. Even more in play is the second story. And I want to move to the second story for a minute. This is the healing of the withered hand, right? So the man-made rule said that if you can wait for medical help the following day, you need to wait. You don't want to work. Jesus here heals the man with the withered hand. And his point is this. Why would I wait to help this man tomorrow when I can help him right now? Love is way more important than your little traditions. Loving this person is way more important than your rituals. Again, Jesus here violates the Sabbath. Now, I want to talk just for a minute about love being greater than rituals, but let me just do a pastor thing if I can and start here. Before I make a point about love being greater than rituals, in Christianity, I think it's wise, and I think this is biblical, that before we start disregarding the traditions and rituals in Christianity, you better know why they were there to begin with. (laughs) G.K. Chesterton, the great Catholic theologian, said this. He said, don't ever take a fence down until you know the reason it was put up. Now, what Chesterton is saying, he's not saying you can't ever take a fence down, but he's saying if you're walking through the woods and you come to a fence and you don't like the fence, don't just start ripping the thing down. It may be up for a purpose. It may be cattle may be bringing it. It may be a legal reason it's up. It may be a historical landmark. You don't know. Make sure we know what we're doing before we just start disregarding rules and, you know, ideas in churches, not just ours, but universally. I just want to tell you this about kind of breaking rituals in church, which we do at RBC all the time. We just want to know why we're doing it. I've been a pastor for 23 years. There are rituals that the church does that in my first few years, I thought were very foolish. I would have disregarded those in a second. I thought they got in the way constantly. Why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? Some of those I still think are foolish. (laughs) A lot of those I've come to value because I've seen the historical significance of these. It's not that we never push through rituals or make changes in churches. That'd be very unwise, right? But just make sure you know why the fence is there before you start burning the thing down. That's the principle. 
But let me just get to what Christ says here. Uh, Here's a good reason to disregard a ritual. Love is greater than rituals. Never let mercy and love or a ritual stand in the way of mercy and love. The tradition, the practice was, was hindering helping people. It wasn't helping people. And in the case of the Sabbath here, nobody's helped by Jesus not healing on the Sabbath. So it is true that some traditions in Christianity are very important. And we value those. But we want to make sure that love is the guide. All right, let me give you number five here. Faith is greater than apathy. Faith is greater than apathy. And what God in this passage calls us to do is this. Step out by faith. It's that simple. Sometimes God just calls you to step out by faith. Look at verse 10. I'm just going to read this verse. And after he looked around, this is the man with the withered hand. After he looked around, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did. And as soon as he did, the hand was restored. Great principle in here for a church and for you as a Christian. Step out by faith. And when we step out by faith, God does something amazing here. Jesus looks at this man and says this. Now, you've got to picture this. The word withered here, uh, it's a tricky translation from the Greek. It might mean the man's hand is withered. It more likely means it's paralyzed. So when Jesus says, stretch out your hand, what do you think is going through this guy's mind? I can't. That's a ridiculous thing to do. Why would I even try to stretch out my hand? And on top of that, you've got all the Pharisees over here. You don't want to look like you're humoring Jesus, do you? Because they're risking the ire. He's going to risk the ire of the Pharisees. There's a lot of reasons, at the minimum, just not looking foolish, at the maximum, not upsetting the Pharisees, that this man should not reach out his hand. He can't reach out his hand, but what does he do? Jesus says, I want you to step out by faith, reach out your hand, and as he does, Jesus supernaturally heals his hand. What does that mean? It's a picture of what it means to live by faith and not by sight. Not to be afraid to step out into what God calls you and me to step out into, knowing that he will be there and he will honor those steps of faith. Well, when you get a chance, go read Hebrews on the Hall of Faith, that chapter 11. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, Jephthah. All of those people that stepped out by faith, whether it was Deborah, Barak, they stepped out by faith not because, but despite a lot of the things that they saw in front of them. Abraham was called to leave, get up and go. Text says he knew not where he was going to go. Moses, he found the courage to stand before Pharaoh, not when the plagues took place, but even before they took place. Esther stood before the king and made a bold declaration when she had no idea how the king would respond. Daniel had no idea how the king would respond when he refused to eat the king's meat. The story goes on and on. The withered hand here is a shriveled hand. This man cannot reach it out, but he steps out by faith. Just to you as an individual and to us as a church family, and I would say this to all Christian communities that worship with us, there is a point where You have to step out by faith. It's never a good time to do something hard, you know? But take the step that God calls you to do, and you watch that when you reach out your hand, the Lord is always there for us in a special way. We are never afraid to do that. Okay, last one, okay? Perseverance is greater than compromise. And I'm talking about the wrong kind of compromise. There is good compromise, then there's the kind of compromise where we compromise who we are as people. And who we are as Christians. 
So there will be conflict between the world and the gospel. That's in the passage. But the church is going to persevere through it all. The gates of hell never prevail against the church, Jesus said. And that's not just a church like RBC, but all Christians that worship together and follow Christ. Perseverance is greater than compromise. What we find in this passage is this. This is one, one of the early conflicts with Jesus and the Pharisees. But that conflict is not going to end there. In fact, it's going to ramp up all the way till Jesus goes to the cross. Then he's going to be crucified and rise from the dead. You cannot be faithful to God in this world and have no, have no, no uh, uh, conflict with the world. Because the world is a conflict with the gospel. I'm not talking about unnecessary conflict. But at some point, conflict comes. Paul says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer some degree of persecution. And so Jesus here has to deal with two groups. You've got the relativistic Romans on the left and the agitated Sanhedrin on the right. And today, we have the same conflicts with the gospel. The relativistic culture and even the religious culture, right? The church is going to be pressed in on. It's encouraging to know here that Jesus encourages his 12. Now, I just want to close with this on this thought. I want you, if you have a Bible, take a look real quick at what comes after these two stories. Ready? After these two stories, verse 12, In these days Jesus went to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and when day came he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. And you know the twelve because we just studied the twelve. Simon, Andrew, James, John, right down the list. Jesus calls the 12 apostles right after he has a confrontation with the Pharisees. You know what that's teaching? That the disciples are going to have the same conflict Jesus has. Perseverance is greater than compromise. And Jesus here is telling his church, he's telling the disciples, he's telling all of us, press on. Don't be discouraged in the fight. Because in the end, Christ always wins. Uh, during a Monday night football game, Chicago Bears, New York Giants... One of the announcers observed Walter Payton. He's a running back. He accumulated over nine miles in his rushing career. That's impressive. If you tallied it all up, nine miles. And the other announcer said, yeah, and that's being knocked down every 4.6 yards. <laughs> you know, a lot of knockdowns in this life. And yet, press forward. In the modern world, we're going to get the same conflicts, but we press forward with the power of Christ. And sometimes it's hard to keep on when you feel like things aren't going anywhere. I'll close with this. I read a story this week. Thomas Carlyle finished his first volume of his book, The French Revolution. It would become, of course, a classic. And he gave his finished manuscript, the only one he had, to John Stuart Mill and asked him to read it. It took John Stuart Mill several days to read, and he realized immediately this is going to be a great literary achievement. Late one night, Mill, as he finished the last page, he set it in the chair in the den of his home. The next morning, the maid came. She saw the papers on the floor. She saw them on the chair. And she took them and discarded them by throwing them into the fire. And the manuscript was burned, the only copy. And then on March 6, 1835, Mill says, I'll never forget that date, March 6, 1835, with his tail between his legs, he had to find Carlyle and with deep agony tell him that his entire manuscript had been lost and destroyed. Carlisle reportedly said something like, it's all right, I can start over in the morning and work on it again. And you know, 
start over in the morning, he would. That would become, of course, one of the great literary achievements. I think life sometimes works that way, doesn't it? You put a lot into something. There's great conflicts that come. You feel like it burns. But you know what? You get up and you keep going and you press on and you got nine miles. Yeah, you're going to get knocked down every 4.6, but that's okay because we put the hand of the plow, as Jesus says, and press on. That's the lesson Jesus gives to his disciples. Perseverance is better than caving in. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. We regard you as our Savior, our Lord. We look to you for strength today. Lord, give us the grace we need to walk with you, overcome obstacles. And I pray, Jesus, that you'd be exalted in all things. Forgive us for responding to problems instead of responding to Christ, asking you what we should do in any given situation. So, Lord, bless and keep us now as we sing. We sing to glorify your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Friends, prayer for you this week. May the love of God surround you. May the grace of God keep you. And may the Spirit of God lead you. Amen. God's blessing on you, friends.